Hey, and welcome back to Felony Spectator. Thanks again for joining me here. And today's episode is kind of wild, so make yourself comfortable and be warned, it gets graphic. Don't listen to this with your kids around, especially the second half, because it can get a little gruesome and it might scare them a little bit. So who are we talking about today? We are talking about Matthew Hoffman. So he was found guilty of murdering three people and was also found guilty of holding 13-year-old Sarah Maynard hostage in the House of Leaves. That's right, Leaves. Sarah Maynard wrote a book about the whole situation and how she survived, and that's really what got me interested in this case. I mean, the house isn't actually made of leaves, but you'll see what I mean once you get out listening to it, because it's very strange. It's a very, very strange story. So let's just get in. Matthew Hoffman is the son of Robert and Patricia Hoffman, and he grew up in the Warren area of Ohio, and he would end up living solely with his mother in 1997 when his parents got divorced. He attended East Knox High School and studied industrial electricity at Knox County Career Center after high school graduation. He did get into a little bit of trouble as a kid. I mean, he went on the roof of his school with his friends, but I mean, nothing major that he got in trouble for as a juvenile, nothing that would make you think that he was a bad dude. As he got a little bit older, a childhood neighbor would say that as a kid, Matthew seemed a little sad or lost. I mean, just generally unhappy. She couldn't really put her finger on it. Other people would just describe Matthew as weird or strange. He didn't really have a lot of friends due to his awkward sort of personality. He was a bit more of a loner. Even as an adult, he didn't really get out of that awkward stage that made him weird. He just liked to be alone and spend time sleeping outdoors in the woods. And not like your traditional camping, more just like taking a few things, a sleeping bag, and just sleeping outside. A friend of Matthew would also say that prior to Matthew buying his home in 2010, Matthew camped out for two months in the woods. This friend would also say that he just thought Matthew was just strange because he spent some time in jail before moving to Apple Valley. Back in the year 2000, Matthew was living in a Colorado ski resort town called Steamboat Springs, where his grandmother lived. Here he worked as a plumber's helper and often worked alone when he was sent to easy jobs. His former boss would say that Matthew maybe seemed a little strange, but mostly just quiet. Well, in Steamboat Springs, Matthew would live in D-Bar K Motel that was mostly filled with transients or low-income residents. But one day he decided to live in one of his client's condos while it was unoccupied. Matthew had been sent to the Ridge Condo Unit 7 to install a garbage disposal and ended up coming back knowing that they were going to be away for a while. The owner of the condo was living in Illinois at the time. So Matthew would sleep in the bed, watch TV, use their jacuzzi, hang out in the condo, and eventually he took some of their belongings before completely torching the condo. He took their Suburban, a mounted cougar, clothes, and the owner would say that most of his possessions seemed to be completely gone. He wanted to ruin any evidence that he may have left behind, so in the middle of the night, Matthew would bring two gas cans into the condo, saturating everything before lighting the entire thing on fire. So around 3 a.m., the condo would quickly go up in flames, with other residents still sleeping inside their units. Thankfully, everyone got out safely and nobody was injured. But there would be over $2 million in damages, and it said about 16 people had to evacuate the building in the middle of the night with nothing but their PJs. 
Fire investigators knew that this fire was suspicious. Unit 7 was known to be unoccupied, and the fire started with an accelerant. So after speaking with the owner of Unit 7, they learned that the only person that entered that unit recently was a plumber. The plumbing company would give them Matthew Hoffman's name and address, also saying that he also hadn't shown up to work in the past few weeks either. Upon entering Matthew's apartment, police would find one very large highway sign leaning up against the wall and evidence that the occupant no longer lived there. The sign would be a carved wooden highway sign saying, Welcome to Steamboat Springs. And then they would also find two more under the building. These signs were worth over $5,000 each. The city of Steamboat Springs had reported that the highway signs were missing, but they were baffled as to why and who would have even taken them. Well, Matthew had allegedly stolen a friend's pickup truck, took the signs, and then returned the truck without him even knowing. Apparently as a souvenir. We do later learn that he actually likes going into people's homes and stealing as well, so he might possibly be a bit of a kleptomaniac. Matthew would be apprehended, and while being questioned about the signs, he admitted to the arson, and he got sentenced to eight years in prison, but only served six years on good behavior. He would be very apologetic, saying that he learned his lesson and was very sorry he put so many people in danger. Inmates would also go on to say that he was a nice guy and he did his time and he didn't cause any trouble. So they just assumed he was a young guy who made a mistake and they'd never hear from him again. Matthew returned to Ohio in 2007. He would live with his mom for a while and by 2009 he would buy his own home in Mount Vernon in central Ohio. Things were looking good. He was making friends and he had a girlfriend who moved into his house with her younger son. And neighbors initially really liked Matthew. His girlfriend's son would often be seeing outside playing with the neighborhood kids. And his next door neighbor, Donna Davis, who had three kids, would let her son go to his house and watch movies and play in the yard, throw a football around, and even let the boys have sleepovers at the Hoffman's house. Hoffman would also help Donna out by picking her daughter up from the movies. After a little while, by the end of summer 2010, Donna would say that things started to change. Matthew became grumpier, his friendly demeanor disappeared, his girlfriend would also come outside less and less, and Donna thought that maybe his girlfriend was sneaking out to come to chat with her when she did actually come outside, and her behavior seemed to change a little bit too. Donna's daughter also said that one time, on their way home from the movies, he took her down some quiet side streets that were totally out of the way from their main route, which made her very uneasy. So Donna would start to limit her daughter's time at the Hoffman's residence, eventually cutting off all ties altogether. Within a few months, Matthew and his girlfriend would break up, and she moved herself and her son out of the home. Matthew also lost his new job as a part-time tree trimmer, and his previous manager at Fast Eddie's Lawn Care said that he worked part-time there for only about three weeks, but he was let go for his performance not being up to company standard. He also didn't disclose that he had been in jail. He was apparently quiet and unassuming, nothing that would indicate that Matthew was dangerous, but co-workers said he was very odd, and just not really someone that they wanted to represent the company. Donna, his neighbor, would go on to say that after Hoffman's girlfriend moved out, he also cut the electricity to his house, which baffled her, because winter in Ohio is pretty cold. So she would also see squirrel traps in the yard, and she presumed this was for him to catch and eat. And he would also climb the trees and just watch people in the neighborhood for hours. 
She actually stopped her kids to go play outside at all if she knew Matthew would be outside. He just made her so super uncomfortable. His ex-girlfriend would later claim that when she came back to the house to grab the remainder of her belongings, they got into a huge heated argument and he began to choke her. They would tumble over a chair and he would use his forearms to pin her neck and he would continue to choke her on and off until he finally allowed her to leave. She did call the police and report the incident, but she later decided not to press charges. It's not known why she decided not to proceed with charges, but I can only imagine that she probably just didn't want to see him ever again. She probably just wanted to cut ties with him and move on with her life. Not long after that, maybe two weeks after his girlfriend moved out, he decided to plan another robbery because apparently doing six years for the last one taught him nothing. He would claim that he randomly chose the house of Tina Herman because he noticed that her garage door didn't close properly and it was in a more private area. Tina Herman was the mother of two. Her ex-husband Larry, who she had a good relationship with, said that everyone loved Tina. She would light up a room and was generally a very happy person. Tina and Larry had two kids together, Sarah and Cody, which they shared custody with until he had to move away for some employment. He had remarried and had a son with his new wife, and he wanted to provide for them, so he made the hard decision to move away from Cody and Sarah so that he could earn some extra money for his own family. Tina was living with her kids and a man named Greg, who was a long-term boyfriend. They were actually in the middle of separating amicably, but still living together while Tina was finding herself a new place to live. When they moved into the home years earlier, Tina had absolutely loved it. It was down a quiet street across from a wooded area that was peaceful, private, and great for the kids. She never felt unsafe living there and was just really proud of her home. She had also become good friends with a neighbor who lived down the street named Stephanie Sprang. Stephanie also had three kids of her own, and people would describe the two women as best friends. They often had each other over for visits, wine, shopping, anything good friends would do. Tina and Stephanie were planning on looking for an apartment for Tina or even a home to rent in that very neighborhood because she had loved it so much. Tina worked at the local Dairy Queen and she loved her job. Her coworkers said that she was always happy, she loved coming to work, and they enjoyed working with her as well. And her kids were amazing, she had a great friend named Stephanie, life was good. On the morning of November 9th, 2010, Matthew Hoffman had spent the night outside hiding in the wooded area across from Tina's home. He had decided that her house was the house that he wanted to break into. So he packed up a sleeping bag, snacks, water, and decided to wait for everyone to go before he let himself in through the broken garage door. Greg had left early for work that day at 3 a.m. to go to his job at the Target Distribution Center and would return a few days later as he had planned to spend the next night at a friend's house and go golfing on his day off. After seeing Greg leave, Matthew would go back to sleep for a little bit. Tina Herman would drive away in her truck that morning about mid-morning and her kids had already left for school so he made his move and snuck inside the quiet home. Hoffman admitted that he felt excited to be inside other people's homes. He enjoyed looking through their belongings, touch everything and figure out how things worked. Hoffman would be in the house for a few hours, which isn't really normal for a regular B&E. Most people go in, they take what they want, and they leave. But Hoffman would be in the house for some time. He claimed that he was looking for things that were easy to carry without being seen. 
but he couldn't find anything of value, which would be a lie because they had iPads, laptops, cameras, lots of stuff that he could have easily taken. Tina would return home after running some errands most of the morning and Hoffman would still be in the house. Hoffman claimed that he didn't really want to hurt anyone, that he was just there to take some things, but when he heard that someone came back into the house, he hid in one of the back bedrooms. Tina would put the groceries down in the kitchen and then she would go into the bedroom where Hoffman would pull a knife on her. Hoffman would go on to say, quote, I hit her a couple times in the head, but this would not knock her out. It was not doing the job and I started panicking, end quote. Tina's friend Stephanie Sprang would walk in and start screaming. Hoffman would then stab Tina two times in her back and claim to have chased Stephanie out of the bedroom before stabbing her in the chest. Now, friends of Stephanie believe that she wouldn't have run, that her personality would have probably been to fight Matthew and rescue her friend, which would make sense because he stabbed her in the front and not the back, which means she was facing him and not running away. Hoffman would then claim to be in utter shock. He would wander and pace around the house, slowly realizing the extent of what happened. During this time, he would also kill the dog because it would not stop barking, and he needed to think of what to do. Hoffman decided it was best to dismember the women's bodies and destroy any evidence that was left in the house. He dragged the women into the master bathroom and went to work. While Hoffman was in mid-mutilation, the kids would return home from school. The house was quiet when they got in, the dog wasn't barking, it didn't greet them when they came in, and nor did their mom, who always said hi when the kids got home. Cody was about to remove his shoes when they'd see Hoffman running towards them with a knife. Cody tried to run out the front door, but Hoffman would get to him first. According to coroner's reports, he was stabbed once in the back of the head, and Sarah ran into a bedroom and hid. Unfortunately, Cody would see the same fate as his mother and Stephanie. Hoffman claimed that he went into the bedroom to kill Stephanie too, but he couldn't explain why he didn't kill her. He just couldn't bring himself to killing Sarah. So instead, he tied her up, put a pillowcase on her head, and put her in the kitchen. He would then finish processing Tina, Stephanie, and Cody, and the family dog. Sarah would lay on the floor, listening to strange sounds coming from the bathroom above her for hours thumping, grunting, and the toilet flushing constantly. Hoffman would then load Sarah into Stephanie's Jeep along with several garbage bags. Sarah would say that she didn't know what was in the garbage bags at the time, but there seemed to be a lot of them. They would then drive for a little bit before Hoffman would then leave Sarah in the Jeep for what seemed like hours, taking the garbage bags with him. Hoffman would return and take Sarah to his Yaris and then Sarah back to his home. Because of the constant stopping and switching vehicles, Sarah really wasn't sure if another person was involved. Hoffman threatened that there was, so she just didn't know what to believe. Sarah would first be tied up in his bathroom, and she would see all kinds of strange doodles on the wall, a weird face drawn around the faucet at the sink, and she would also see hundreds of leaf bags piled up all around the room. She asked him what it was all about, and he just told her it was for insulation. Sarah at this time was also in survival mode, she decided to compliment Matthew on his drawings. He would tie her up, leaving her on the floor, and left the house, telling her that someone was outside and would kill her if she tried to escape. Sarah wanted to live, so she just did what she was told and stayed on the cold bathroom floor. When he returned, he brought Sarah to his cold, dark basement. Hoffman had made a makeshift bed in the basement for her out of leaves and blankets, 
and there was no windows in the basement, and Sarah would eventually lose all track of time while being confined to this leaf bed. Hoffman told investigators that Sarah liked the bed, and it was extremely comfy. He himself had wanted to sleep on it, and sometimes he did, with his arm around Sarah. Sarah would say that this bed was better than the bathroom floor, but it was creepy and dark in the basement. Sometimes Hoffman would come down and just stare at her, not speaking, and then would just go back right upstairs again. She didn't want to upset him, so she just tried her best to sleep most of the time. She never yelled or tried to scream for help. Hoffman didn't actually see himself as someone who was holding Sarah hostage. It's believed that he thought Sarah was enjoying her time with him. He had claimed that they played video games, watched movies together, Treasure Island, Iron Man, and he made her burgers, which he thought she enjoyed. He would also say that she wet herself, so he washed her clothes and let her have a shower. Sadly for Sarah, Hoffman also raped her several times while she was trapped in the basement. While Sarah was in the basement held hostage, the rest of her family were reported missing. When Tina Herman failed to show up for work at her job at Dairy Queen on November 11th, her manager would call the police because nobody could get a hold of Tina. An officer would drive by the house during the day and notice the driveway empty, but nothing looked unusual, so he drove on. He would return later in the evening, and Tina's truck would now be back in the driveway. The lights on were in the house, so again, he assumed that she was home and everything was fine, so he didn't stop. Tina failed to come to work the next day again, so this time her manager went to Tina's home to check for herself. Nobody answered when she knocked, so she broke in through a window and saw the scene and would immediately call authorities. Police would find large amounts of blood all over the home. There was a large saturation in the front room, a large saturation in the master bedroom, another large saturation in what they believed to be Sarah's room, blood marks throughout the hallways that appeared to be drag marks, blood marks throughout the master bathroom, shower, sink, floor, and bathtub. They would also find patches of oil and bleach that were poured over some of the blood, It appeared the attacker tried to clean up somewhat before just giving up. There was also shoe prints as well throughout the puddles of blood and oil. A pair of gloves were left in the bathroom sink and a bottle of bleach as well. A Jeep Cherokee was parked in the garage and had various types of weeds in the grill as well as blood stains inside. It was later discovered that the Jeep belonged to Stephanie Sprang, Tina's best friend and neighbor, who had also not been seen or heard from in at least two days. Police would then also learn that the kids had missed school as well. Detectives decided to launch a full-scale missing persons investigation to find Tina, her son Cody, her daughter Sarah, and friend Stephanie. Detectives were thinking the worst. No activity had showed up on the women's credit cards, cell phones, and with the amount of blood in the house, it was just so unnerving. They did, however, find a child-sized shoe print in the garage of an airwalk boot. The shoebox that the boot belonged to was in Sarah's closet, so they were super hopeful that she was alive. The day after the murders, police had found Tina's truck abandoned near Keaton College campus with empty gas cans in the back. Strangely, deputies would also see a man loitering in a Yaris in the parking lot nearby. Police would ask the stranger who he was, and Hoffman would show them his driver's license and would tell them that he was waiting for his girlfriend, Sarah. He didn't know her last name because it was a new relationship. So police would let Hoffman go, but they decided to make a note of it with dispatch. Hoffman had driven Tina's truck to get the gas can filled with gas, but it was having transmission problems. His plan was to burn Tina's house down to destroy all the evidence he left behind. 
But when the truck was having a breakdown, he parked it in the lot of the Keaton College campus and walked back all the way to his house, defeated. He would sleep there for a little bit, but decided to go back in his Prius for the gas can so he could finish the job. This is when the police cruiser saw him parked beside Tina's truck. Hoffman would go back home and have a bonfire in his backyard where he would burn his shoes and clothes from the incident, hoping that that would be enough. Hoffman would forget a Walmart bag he left in the garage filled with a receipt, tarps, and a new roll of heavy-duty garbage bags that differed from the other bags in the home. Detectives would find this and requested Walmart to search their store records for the purchase of these items. The customer who purchased these items was of medium build, dark-haired Caucasian, and he drove away in a silver Toyota Yaris. Detectives would search their motor vehicle database on local Yaris owners, and they were able to identify Matthew Hoffman because he wore the same camouflage shirt in his license photo as he did in Walmart. Once they did more investigating into Matthew Hoffman, his name would also pop up in the dispatch logs where they located Tina's truck. He was the man who was loitering around waiting for Sarah. So they finally had their suspect. Police would quickly go and get a no-knock warrant for Hoffman in connection to the disappearance of Tina, Cody, Stephanie, and Sarah, and would go to his house to bring him in for questioning. SWAT officers would burst through Hoffman's front door, throwing flashbangs to disorient and stun Hoffman while he was sleeping on the couch. While officers were in Hoffman's house, they would see a room to the right of the front door that was covered in leaves about three feet deep. It was worrisome because they didn't know if someone was hiding in the leaves or if there was bodies in the leaves. It wasn't something they had ever seen before. They would also find three floor-to-ceiling rows of bagged leaves hanging from the living room wall. The bathroom was also completely insulated by more than 110 bags of leaves attached to the wall and surrounding the toilet. They would slowly walk through the home and find Sarah was thankfully alive in the basement. When police found her, she was wearing a garbage bag with holes cut out for the legs, and this bag would resemble something like a makeshift adult diaper. She still had her jeans on, but they were wet from the waist to her knees from urinating herself from not being allowed to use the toilet. Her arms and legs were bound with rope. Hoffman had gagged her as well, but he also confided her in saying that she would be released by Christmas. Thankfully, nobody had to wait that long. Sarah would deny that Hoffman ever cooked for her or allowed her to play games or watch movies. She would recall that once he gave her a bowl of cereal with curdled milk, and she gagged some of that down trying not to upset him. She wasn't allowed to shower and was denied food and basic hygiene, like the use of a toilet or a shower. Inside the home was also a pair of sure-fit gloves, the same style gloves that were found in the sink at Tina Herman's. They would discover that Hoffman had bought these gloves on November 8th, the day before the incident. He had also bought duct tape and had ordered a knife that he had used at the crime scene a week before the incident. Inside Hoffman's freezer were two squirrels, a red popsicle, and not much else. There was strange doodles in the wall of his home. These sketches would be compared to what someone would find on a teenage girl's notebook. There was a giant peace sign, stars, random names written in marker, and inside the white bathtub was a drawing of a jack-o'-lantern. Hoffman would remain fairly silent during his interrogation, and investigators weren't able to get much out of him. The only thing he did worth noting was that he slammed his fists against his chest and signed like he was breaking something. It looked like he was trying to gesture heartbroken, but when questioned, he just put his head back down and didn't answer. 
It wasn't until November 16th that he finally opened up to Special Agent Joe Dees. It wasn't being recorded when Hoffman would start talking as they were in the restroom at the time, but he basically said that he had a nightmare and was probably ready to start talking. But he had a request. His request would be that he would write everything down on a piece of paper and detectives could read it. He would then run away and in an attempt to escape custody, they would shoot him dead. Obviously, they said no, that they were not going to agree to shoot him. So Hoffman remained silent for a few more days. He threatened to kill himself in jail because he could not live with what he had done. He also didn't want to spend the rest of his life in jail being injected with Thorazine, Thorazine, not sure how to say that, a schizophrenic drug, but he did call himself a monster. It would be another two days before Hoffman would finally tell detectives about a 60-foot hollow tree in the Wilderness Reserve near Fredericton. He had a rig and pulley system that he used to lift everybody inside the tree, and with his experience being a tree trimmer, this would also help him tremendously. He traded that information only to be spared the death penalty because he had also decided that he didn't want to die anymore. So he agreed to the detailed confession to his attorneys and pled guilty. Matthew J. Hoffman was given a life sentence without parole. The community was understandably upset by this incident. Tina's co-workers missed her so much and they decided to donate a dollar from the sales of blizzards during a short period of time to support Sarah Maynard and Stephanie Sprang's children. They raised over $2,532. And nobody really knows why Matthew Hoffman did this. Hoffman's lawyers really wanted the courts to believe that it was random, but Hoffman had previously bought these gloves, the duct tape, and the knife a week before, and he also hung out in the house for hours without stealing anything. Why didn't he just rob the place and leave? Police also later learned that Matthew Hoffman was the member of the same gym that Stephanie Sprang worked at as part of a cleaning crew. A friend of Stephanie's also claims that she and Tina went to a house on Columbus Road as Stephanie was supposed to clean a house there but there was apparently plumbing issues, so she didn't. This friend also says that Matthew and Tina may have connected on Facebook at some point. Back in 2009, Stephanie was doing some odd jobs around the community for work, and her ex-husband put an addition on Matthew Hoffman's house, and Stephanie did some odds and ends there as well. Stephanie's ex also worked on Matthew Hoffman's mother's house, and Stephanie accompanied him there as well. So police believe this person to be credible, so there's definitely connections there. But Matthew still insists that it was a random burglary, but perhaps it wasn't. Authorities also say that maybe he was collecting all these leaves to use as an accelerant and was planning on burning his own home down. Now, I'm not sure we'll ever know the real reason for his behavior or why he chose to kill so many innocent people. I have a hard time believing that he was suffering from a mental health episode, but I'm not a doctor, obviously. But with any other criminal suffering from these types of episodes, they usually say something made them kill, like voices or twisted beliefs. But Matthew said that it wasn't his intention and he just wanted to do a break-in. I also don't think this was an isolated incident. His MO is probably going into homes, exploring, and leaving undetected. And maybe this killing was him escalating his behavior. Who knows? Maybe he just wanted to scare or hurt Tina and didn't expect it to go this far. But I'd love to know your thoughts. What do you think about this? Because to me, it's so unusual and so unreal. 
And Sarah is such a brave person. She stayed so calm and did the right thing throughout this entire ordeal. Had she fought him or freaked out, things could have gone so differently. She has shared her story, and with the help of an author and her father, there is a book called The Girl in the Leaves, which is really eye-opening on the whole entire incident. I definitely recommend it if you wanted to learn more. Thank you again for joining me here on Felony Spectator. Please hit subscribe and join me again for another true crime story.